following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Exodus chapter 4 is where we are this morning. Uh, We're in this scene in the book of Exodus where we began this last week where we looked at God's encounter with Moses at the burning bush. And uh, last week we looked at Exodus 3 and we, and we looked really at a very small passage, very small part of that chapter in verses 12 to, to 14 where God reveals his name to Moses. So we really narrowed in pretty significantly just on that one or two verses where God says, I am who I am. And we talked about how uh, God makes himself known and the way that that name really in the end means God is for us. Uh, and, and I hope, I really felt last week like if, if, I, if I sent you out of here with nothing more than a little bit more conviction that God is for you, that was application of plenty, I felt, from the message. So I hope that you, I hope you had that sense and I hope that you've been living in the for usness of God um, a little bit more this week. It's such a fundamental reality because it's the name of God, it's, it's just who God is. So we're carrying on the same story in chapter 4, carrying on this encounter between God and Moses in the burning bush, and then the story moves forward as Moses returns to Egypt. So let's read this from the beginning of Exodus 4. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, Nor since you have spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. 
The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you, the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then, the Lord, then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. By far the strangest part of that chapter is this weird bit where God tries to kill Moses, don't you think? It's just bizarre. We'll come to that, all right? We're going to come to that. How can you not deal with that crazy story? Um, We'll get there. But just look back at the beginning of the chapter. Let's just set up the context here. Uh, God has called Moses at this point to be uh, his ambassador, to stand before Pharaoh and demand the release of the Hebrew people. And Moses, through this interaction with God, he has a number of questions which become objections, which become outright protests to the point that God gets pretty annoyed with him. And one of the protests that Moses puts up, uh, or questions, is at the beginning of chapter 4, the very first verse. Moses says, What if they do not believe me, or listen to me, and say, The Lord did not appear to you? And that's the question that prompts these three signs from God. God gives Moses three signs to perform. In fact, he does two of them here, and then he promises Moses a third sign before Pharaoh. He doesn't do that right at this point. Uh, And these signs are extremely significant, each of them, particularly the first one. God says to Moses, take your staff, this wooden staff, throw it on the ground. He does so, and it becomes a snake. And Moses runs from it, but then God says, no, pick it up by the tail. Moses picks it up, and it turns back into a staff in his hand. It's huge significance to this sign. This is not just a sign where God's demonstrating that he can do powerful things. This has real significance. In Egyptian mythology, snakes were extremely important. This is, I think, some of the most interesting stuff in Exodus, the way that there's a competition being set up here between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. Snakes were extremely important. There were all kinds of serpent deities. And it was so important that Pharaoh himself wore this headpiece. You've probably seen depictions of this, wore this headdress. And on it, at the front, there's a snake. There's this cobra coming out at you from the front of Pharaoh's headpiece. And the the depiction, the symbol, is is called a uraeus. It's this particular stylized symbol of a snake that the Pharaoh would wear. And that symbol, the uraeus, it represented one of these serpent deities, one of the most powerful serpent deities in Egypt. And this deity, this goddess, serpent goddess, was believed to have power over Egypt, over particular territories. And she was believed to be the goddess who protected the Pharaoh. This was the goddess who gave Pharaoh his mandate, who gave his rule legitimacy, and who watched over the Pharaoh. That's why he wore the headpiece, 
It's like this symbolic idea that the, the snake, the uraeus, she is, she is covering me. She's going to protect me. What can possibly go wrong if the serpent goddess is watching over the Pharaoh? So here's a sign now. God says to Moses, that I want, this is a sign that's going to happen before Pharaoh. It's not just for Moses. This is before Pharaoh. So in the next chapter, you see Moses doing the same thing before Pharaoh. The staff becomes a snake on the ground before Pharaoh. What do you think God is saying to Pharaoh? You think this is going to protect you, right? You think this goddess is going to protect you? You think the Uraeus is going to offer you some kind of covering, some kind of protection? Pharaoh, your protection is gone. Your protection is gone. You, don't, you are exposed and you are about to be wiped out. That's what God is saying. He picks up, Moses picks up the snake by the tail. There's this idea here. You worship all these gods and goddesses. You've turned virtually every creature into a god or goddess, but Yahweh is saying, these are creatures that I've made. These are creatures over which I have power. Yahweh is the sovereign one. Yahweh is the God, the Lord of all creation. These are just creatures that are part of his created order. And the goddess you think is going to keep you safe, Pharaoh, is the goddess that I am demonstrating my power over, and your protection is gone. That's the message that's being communicated here. You know, the word Uraeus, you know what it literally means in Egyptian? Risen one. Isn't that great? Risen one. It's the idea of the cobra rising up in protection. You know how they do? Protecting. And so that was applied to Pharaoh. The, the, the snake serpent goddess would rise up like a cobra in protection of the Pharaoh. But can you hear the biblical echoes there? Risen one. It's beautiful. The way that God is saying so early in the biblical story, I'm going to send my son and he will rise up. He will be the risen one. And he will be crowned with glory and honor and real power. Not the kind of power you've got, Pharaoh. Real power over heaven and earth, over life and death. Jesus will be the risen one. Jesus is the risen one. He, and he is our protector now. He is the one who really watches over us, who covers us in that sense. Christ is our Lord. Christ is our protector. Not this silly serpent goddess that you put on your headpiece, Pharaoh. It's Christ. That's where the story is going. In fact, there's this symbol in the book of Revelation where those who belong to Jesus, we have his name on our forehead. We have the name of Christ. And I just wonder, when, when Jesus gave that image to John in Revelation, I wonder whether he was thinking all the way back to the Uraeus in Egypt, all the way back to Pharaoh. And he's saying, you know, Pharaoh wore this headpiece. He had the serpent there. It claimed protection over him. Guess what? Those who belong to Jesus, we've got the name of Christ on our foreheads. Christ is our defender. Christ is our advocate. Christ is Lord of all. Oh, you just love the way the Bible's put together. Just the way, this is where the story goes. This is what the sign was all about. Ultimately, it leads us to Jesus. So that's the first sign. The second sign is Moses puts his hand into his cloak and then pulls it out again, and it's, it's full of leprosy. It's diseased. And he puts it back in his cloak, pulls it out, and it's restored again to life. And I think the, the idea here is simply that God has the power of all human life. The power of life, the power of the human body, that it, it belongs to God. You can imagine these three signs kind of moving out in concentric circles, demonstrating the extent of God's power. Firstly, he demonstrates his power over Egypt and the Egyptian dynasty with the snake miracle. Now he's demonstrating he has the power of all human life. It's in his hands, the power to give life, the power to take it away. And then what's the third sign? Get a cup of water, 
dip it in the Nile, tip it out, it'll become blood. And it's obviously indicative of the plague that's coming. And we'll look more at that when we get to the plagues. But among other things, that miracle is demonstrating Yahweh has the power over what? Creation, over nature, over the Nile. The Egyptians turned the Nile into a god as well. Everything was a god, this pantheon of deities they had. The Nile was a god too. And, and here is God saying, no, 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 this is part of my creation. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am creator. And this is the extent of my power. So God is powerful and he's giving Moses signs of his power over Egypt, over humanity, and then over all of the physical creation, all humanity, all creation under the power of God. That's what God is showing Moses. So Moses isn't quite convinced by that and uh, he still puts up a couple of objections to God, a couple more protests. He says, God, I'm slow of speech and tongue. And and literally those words that Moses says to God there is, uh, he says, I am heavy of tongue and heavy of mouth. And some scholars actually believe that maybe Moses even had a speech impediment. He may have had some kind of disability in in being able to speak. And if that's the case, really, whatever whatever the exact meaning of that phrase is, doesn't it just take you back to that theme that we looked at a couple of weeks ago of God using weakness to accomplish his purposes? God uses a baby floating down the Nile in a basket, this humble event to accomplish his purposes. Now here's God using a guy with a speech impediment to stand before the leader of the Egyptian dynasty and demand the release of the Hebrew people. Why would God do that? To demonstrate his power because he's a God who loves to use weakness. And, and, and as far as we know, he never healed Moses of that. There's no indication that Moses some, somehow suddenly became a great speaker. He does speak. But there's no indication that God healed him of his speaking disability. But in his weakness, God used him. And precisely because of his weakness, God's power was demonstrated. Not Moses' power, not Aaron's power, but the power of Yahweh. In our weakness, we are strong. So Moses finishes this little interaction with God and then he goes on his way back to his home in Midian, goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law. He seeks permission from Jethro to head back to Egypt. Jethro blesses him and wishes him well. And he packs up his family, his wife, his children, his possessions, puts them all on a donkey. Can't have had a whole lot, right? They all seem to get on one donkey. And he, he heads back to Egypt. But then along the way, there is this strange story that just seems to come out of nowhere. So, you know, Moses was seeming to have a good conversation with God, but then all of a sudden, uh, God turns up and tries to kill Moses. It's like, where did this come from? Well, verse 24 is where this little episode takes place. And um, let me just say up front, no one really knows what this means. Uh, you, you can read 20 commentaries. They'll tell you 20 different things about what this is going on. Nobody really knows. But, so I'll have a shot at it, but you know, you, you're just going to have to draw your own conclusions about exactly what's happening here. But it may be that the person God intended to kill here was not Moses, but Moses' son, Gershom, his firstborn. Because in verse 24, uh, the word Moses is not there. It just simply says him in the Hebrew. The translators often assume that it's Moses, so they put Moses' name in there. But it simply says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, And was about to kill him. And just before this, if you go back to the paragraph beforehand, God has just been saying to Moses how he's going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. That's the context. He's indicated very early on that he's going to do that. 
Because Pharaoh would harden his heart, God knew that would happen. And so he says, I'm going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And then it would make sense, I think, for God then, in the context of this, that the person God intended to kill was not Moses, but Moses' firstborn son, Gershom. And the only way that God's intention is diverted is because Zipporah pops up and has her son circumcised. And then God's anger turns away. Circumcision, it's not everyone's favorite topic to talk about in church, is it? It's not probably not why you came this morning. If you'd like to know more about circumcision, you can ask the elders after church, and they're happy to talk to you about that. But it, it, is, it is an important part of the Old Testament story. And really, I think the simplest way to think about it is that circumcision was a mark of grace. It was really the mark of grace in the Old Testament. It was a sign for the males that you were part of the covenant family. You're part of Abraham's family. Going right back to Abraham himself, this was the sign. You're part of the people upon whom God bestows his blessing, the people he's chosen by his grace, the people that he's bestowed his favor upon. It's a physical mark of belonging to that family for males, thereby symbolizing their families. So I think the question that this little passage raises is, is Moses' son any better than Pharaoh's son? You know, is Moses' son any more deserving than Pharaoh's son of God's grace? And the answer is no. Pharaoh's son is no better, no worse. Moses' son, Gershom, is no better, no worse. The Egyptian sons and daughters were no worse than the Israelites. The Israelites were no better than the Egyptians. The only difference between them is God's grace. And God's not about to let Moses start the Exodus without his own son being marked by the grace of God. I think that's probably what's going on, but I could be wrong. But if it is, it's a beautiful depiction of the grace of God who says, you know, the Israelites were never chosen because they were somehow more deserving, more worthy, or a better people. It's all the favor of God. It's all the grace of God poured out on an undeserving people. And this is a beautiful backdrop to the New Testament. What is the New Testament equivalent of circumcision in the Old Testament? Flick over briefly to Colossians 2. This is it, Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, that's in Christ, you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know what the spiritual equivalent of circumcision is in the New Testament is the cross. The cross is the mark of God's grace in our lives today. No longer a physical circumcision, but a spiritual renewal through the cross of Christ, expressed in baptism, demonstrated in baptism. So uh, I don't want to push this because I don't want you to have the image of circumcision in your head when people get baptized next week. But, you know, theologically, that's what happens, is now we get baptized and we are demonstrating that our, that our lives are marked by the grace and the mercy of God. Our lives are stamped with Jesus now. It's the cross. It's nothing in us. We are no more deserving of it. We're no more deserving than the Egyptian sons and daughters were. No less deserving either. The cross keeps us anchored to the grace of God. It reminds us that even on our best days, we are desperately in need of the grace of God. And on our worst days, we need to look up and look at the cross and remember it's nothing in me. It's all the grace of God. It's because of what Jesus has done for me, the work that he's finished now on my behalf. My identity is in him. His life is my life. 
and I'm forgiven because of what Christ has done for me. That's the cross. That's the equivalent now in the New Testament of what circumcision was. So I think what you're seeing back in Exodus 4 is a little uh, foretaste of circumcision, uh, of, of grace, ultimately expressed through Jesus through the cross. And that's where the story goes. So this chapter in Exodus 4, when you step back from it, is really a chapter of signs. It's the signs of God that he gives to Moses. He gives Moses these three signs to demonstrate his power. He gives Moses the sign of circumcision, reminds him of the sign of circumcision to demonstrate his grace. God is giving Moses these signs and wonders to demonstrate power, to demonstrate grace. And all of this finds its way to Jesus in the New Testament. All of this just, just comes together beautifully at the cross. It comes together at the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to demonstrate the power of God and the grace of God. These signs always point us to the cross. They always point us to Jesus. Now, here's the question, I think, on the other side of all this. We now live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Our lives are marked by grace. We're, we're living out the power of God, the grace of God in our lives. So where today can we see signs of grace and power? Where today in our lives can we see, can we find signs? Of, it's not going to be the same ways that God worked with Moses in Exodus chapter 4, but where in our lives can we see the signs of God's grace and power? And to answer this, I want to come back to the beginning of this chapter again. I think there's a clue right here in the very first couple of verses. <clears throat> Moses asks God, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to what I say? And then in verse 2, the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? I love that question. What is that in your hand? And of course, he's talking about Moses' staff, which is the most ordinary object you can imagine. It's just a stick. It's just a wooden staff that Moses carried around as a shepherd. He would have used it to keep the sheep in line, give them a whack when they got out of line. It was just a very commonplace tool of the trade for a shepherd. But that staff becomes extremely important. It's mentioned at least twice more in this chapter. In fact, the last thing God says to Moses before he sends him on his way is, Moses, don't forget your staff. You better take your staff with you. And this is the staff through which God is going to do his wonders. This is the staff that eventually will part the Red Sea. Of course, it's God that parts the Red Sea, but he, he chooses for some reason the staff as a real instrument of power, a real instrument of his grace and his miracles. He channels it somehow through Moses and through this instrument of the staff. And I love it the way God didn't give Moses something else to use. He didn't put something else in Moses' hand. He didn't give him a magic wand. He didn't give him a royal scepter. He just said, Moses, what's already in your hand? A staff. And he uses that to display his wonders. It's a powerful question. What's in our hand? God doesn't always bring big experiences into our lives from the outside. He doesn't always bring big extraordinary things. He doesn't always give us something new to reveal his grace and his power. He simply does this through the stuff that's already going on in our lives, through the people that are already in our lives, through the spaces and places we're already inhabiting every day, through the routines and the rhythms of ordinary life. That's how God demonstrates his grace. That's how he demonstrates his power. See, when you think about signs and wonders, what do you think? Big stuff, right? Come on, you think big signs and what we think about people, dramatic healings, 
Think about people having demons cast out of them. Think about huge revivals, hundreds of people becoming Christians. And we think that the people that do signs and wonders and receive signs and wonders are the ones living extraordinary lives. They're off planting churches in deepest, darkest Africa. They're the big revival preachers. They're the people that fast for 100 days. You know, These are the people, aren't they, that receive signs and wonders. The Bible says no. It's through what's already in your hand. It's the ordinary stuff that God uses to demonstrate his grace and demonstrate his power. It is the most mundane things in your life, the very sights where God is going to reveal to you his grace and his love and his presence. It's in the ordinary stuff of life. It's in the commonplace stuff of life. And we've just got to learn to see it. As long as we're fixated on the big signs and wonders, the big experience, and something other than what our life already is now, we're going to miss what God is doing. The British poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem called Aurora Lee, and she has a stanza in there where she uses this image of the burning bush to talk about seeing God in the ordinary things. It says this, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. That's good, eh? And this just loaded with meaning every phrase. They don't you love? Earth's crammed with heaven. You know, the ordinary stuff in your life. Crammed with the extraordinary. The, the, the seemingly secular stuff in your life. Crammed with the spiritual. The trivial, the mundane, the ordinary, crammed full of heaven, crammed full of the kingdom. If we would just learn to see it and recognize the grace of God in it. I was talking to Anna about this and she said, yeah, for me, it's chopping coriander. I thought, what, coriander? But yeah, she said, you know, when I'm chopping coriander, it's just the simple activity that reminds her of the goodness and the grace of God, just finding joy and very simple, ordinary things. She's chopping the coriander, so she's thinking about this is about to go in a beautiful curry. You know, she's thinking about the meal that this is going to be a part of. She's chopping the coriander, and it releases the aroma of the coriander, and just in a very simple, humble way, this is a sign of God's grace. Could you say that coriander is a sign and a wonder? <laughs> you know, that's what you've actually got to get down to, I think, with this stuff, is say it, it is the most minute stuff in our life that contains somehow the grace of God. I'm not saying it's full of something divine, but I'm saying God uses this stuff to reveal to us, to remind us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, James tells us, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift. So there may be good and perfect gifts around us that we're missing because what we've got to do is learn to see what's going on. And that requires us, I think, to become a little more present to each moment. We tend to be so future-orientated, don't we? I know I do. You're living already now in this afternoon, in a sense, aren't you? Right? You're living in tomorrow. You're thinking this week. You're thinking next year. You're thinking some of you five years, 20 years. We're living in the next. I do this. I think about this with my kids. I think, man, wait until they're all at school. Finally, my Monday off will truly be... <laughs> A Monday off. It's going to be amazing. And I think, oh, even just imagine the day when they're all out of nappies. Goodness. I mean, a nappy-free home is just like, I can't even imagine. It'd be amazing. 
And so we live in that next stage. We live in and we look forward to, and it's fine to plan. I'm not saying don't think about the future, don't plan for the future. But when we become obsessed with that and that occupies all our time and our energy and our attention, we miss what God is doing now. And we fail to be fully present in this moment and to recognize grace, to recognize glory. There's so much talk about living the extraordinary life. I want more talk about living the ordinary life for the glory of God. What about the glory of the ordinary? Finding the glory of God in ordinary stuff, ordinary people, ordinary places, the stuff you're already doing. What's in your hand? I was talking to Janine Irvine, a woman in our church community, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, she told me about this thing she's doing at the moment called 40 Days of Fingerprints. It's, she came up with that herself, uh, that project. And she said she was just in a space where she was really feeling a bit disconnected from God, uh, unsure of where God was leading her, couldn't really feel his presence in her life. And so she set herself this creative challenge, and she's a very creative person, uh, which she called 40 Days of Fingerprints. And what she's doing, I think she's still doing this, is taking a camera just about everywhere she goes. And she's just capturing moments, just things, very ordinary things, but she's using this as a way to force herself to become more attentive to looking for traces of God's fingerprints in ordinary situations. So she's taking photos of, of nature, uh, a flower, a storm, whatever it is, human interaction, just as a reminder of God's presence in our relationships, in our community with one another. And she's uh, then logging these photos and bringing in Bible verses that she sees relating to each one as she goes back and, and looks over them. So this is just her, it's not everyone's way, but this is just her way of saying, how can I connect with God in the ordinary stuff of life? How can I find him? And so what she's doing and forcing herself to do is to slow down and to be more present and to be more attentive. And I think when we start doing those things and we do become a little present and we just simply start looking for it and start believing that God is closer to us than we think he is, uh, we'll start to see things that we perhaps didn't expect to see. And we'll see that, in fact, every burning bush, every bush is a fire with God's presence. And earth truly is crammed with heaven. So I just simply ask you that this morning as we finish. What is that in your hand? That same question God asked Moses is a question for us to reflect on this morning. What's that in your hand? Who's in your life? Who are you having lunch with today? What's this week going to be filled with for you? And are you willing to open your eyes and learn to see the glory of God in the ordinary? Or are you just going to sit around and pluck back blackberries? Are you willing to see that this is holy ground, not just here in church, but every step you take is holy ground if you can recognize the presence of God within it? Are you willing to say the signs and wonders are not just big things out there, they're little things in my life, in our families, our flatting situations? And the, and the jobs that we have, the social interactions that we have, it's all there. It's the grace and the power of God. Let's see signs and wonders in everything. Let's give God praise for them. Let's learn to look for the glory of God in the most ordinary stuff of life. Amen? Let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, we now ask that you would just come and open our eyes. And even right now, God, we ask that you'd open our eyes to the way in which Christ is all around us. Christ is before us and behind us, beside us. We want to ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd open our eyes to see you in places that we've never seen you before. To see you in the ordinary and even to see you in the hard stuff, 
of life. God, open our eyes. Help us to see. And when we see it, God, help us to name it and to thank you for your presence revealed through the small things and the commonplace things of our lives. We thank you for your uncommon grace that is revealed through the very common things in our existence. We thank you in Jesus' name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.